Hello, and thanks to everyone who is joining us for this podcast. In the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased by a massive 25%, according to research by the World Health Organization. As the NHS thereby seeks to address the backlogs in not only elective settings, but also in the uptick in mental health service demand, we ask, is there a role for digital technologies in treating and supporting patients with mental health conditions? The benefits of mental health apps in particular are not hard to come across. They are convenient, treatment can take place anytime, anywhere, and they can free up clinical workload. They are also seen as a complement to other traditional forms of mental health treatment, especially with the long waiting times that are all too common in the NHS at the moment. My name is Rosie Hill. I'm a senior associate here at Global Council in the Health and Life Sciences team. And today we will be talking about how digital technologies fit into the NHS landscape and whether they can help to reduce the pressures on the mental health system. To discuss this and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Brian Dow, Deputy CEO at Rethink Mental Illness and the CEO of Mental Health UK, Heather Cook, Sleepio Special Advisor on Digital Technology Pathway Development with NHSE, and Dr. Hartpreet Sood, Practicing GP and former Associate Chief Clinical Information Officer at NHS England. Brian, you are currently Chief Executive of Mental Health UK, a charity which delivers support for the challenges that pose a threat to people's mental health, as well as being the Deputy Chief Executive at the charity Rethink Mental Illness. I wonder if you could talk us through how both of these organisations have experienced the pandemic and the impact it has had on the UK's mental health and just where you think we are with mental health policy today. It's a, It's been a, a, a peculiar old two or three years, hasn't it? And I think uh, if you were to look at it from one perspective, I would say that again, this, the speed of innovation around mental health uh, definitely accelerated uh, over the course of the pandemic and particularly uh, in terms of digital provision. So, you know, I think we kind of all probably been working to assumption that people, in particular those with severe mental illness, wouldn't really benefit from um, digital therapies, for example. But of course, what happened in uh, the pandemic was we found that for a lot of people that that did work. And although, you know, at kind of population level, the number of people who experienced mental health problems for the first time uh, increased greatly and also levels of acuity uh, of mental illness uh, deepened because people struggled to get access to, to to services. I think that some of the uh, positives that emerged about access to digital therapies, the speed at which the system could change. So, for example, we saw an incredibly quick rollout of um, crisis provision, which had been scheduled to take a further, I think, 18 or 24 months, but was done in effect in three. So, so the kind of the sense at which the pandemic both made things very difficult for people, um, and those that that isolation that people experienced, the, the the fear that fed into people's mental health problems, that was all very very troubling. But I think actually the kind of the art of the possible really began to change over the course of the pandemic. And I think where that leaves us now is we have greater need, greater pressure on the system. Health professionals, I think, probably struggling to cope with with the demand, but demonstrates why having a much more kind of mixed economy of support for people, traditional and, and digital, for example, I think is probably part of what will solve that that greater need, as well, of course, as uh, longer term investment in the system as a whole. Hartpreet, 
It would be great to understand what you think the role of digital health technologies might be in this space, um, particularly thinking about your primary care hat on. And I'm also noting recently how NICE, the health regulator, has conditionally recommended digital CBT for use in the health service to help children and young people with symptoms of mild to moderate anxiety. Does technology have a role in treating mental health conditions? Thanks, Rosie. Um, so, look, I think we've seen a couple of things over the last uh, few years in particular, which has been accelerated by the pandemic. Firstly, there's been a big step change in the behaviour and attitudes the clinical workforce in particular have had towards technology. And I think for the better, which is that many are now approachable and, and understand the value that technology brings. Um, you know, before that, it was far and few between, and it was always a bit of an uphill struggle in terms of whether digital tools, technology could really, really make a difference. So I think because of that behavior and uh, attitude change, I think that's a really, really positive step. I think the second thing that we've seen is the emerging uh, of very good evidence that's coming through now, which suggests that actually uh, the digital tools that we have are equally good, if not better, than some of the current treatments we have. And in particular, the one you mentioned that is providing uh, digital CBT, I think is, is, is hugely beneficial and the evidence suggests so. And so based on those two things, the answer is yes, I, I do think that uh, there is a role for digital technologies to play uh, in, in managing conditions such as CBT or, or wider uh, elements of mental health uh, treatment. But the challenge, I guess, is that it's it's not for everyone. And, and I think that's also the case. You know, this meets the criteria for a segment of the population. But the fact that we have a channel and we have the opportunity to engage more patients uh, on their mental health, I think, is, is hugely positive. Um, but the challenge I think we have moving forward is figuring out who does this work for and who does it not work for. So that evidence base will need to be built. And, and it's a mixture of, you know, age, demographics, backgrounds, um, you know, who or how they want to engage with technologies and whether it's video, whether it's through text. You know, I think there's multiple channels and multiple options we have now, which I think makes it hugely exciting. But um, we've still got a bit to prove on that. So the answer is yes. I think there is a big space and we're super excited, especially as a clinician, because that's something now I can offer my patients. Thank you, Harpreet. Heather, if I can come to you next, you are Sleepio Special Advisor on the Digital Technology Pathway Development with NHSE. Sleepio famously being the first ever digital therapeutic to receive NICE guidance. As someone who works with a health tech company revolutionising this space, what do you see the benefits to be of mental health technologies? And given your role, how can other companies such as yourselves work in collaboration with the NHS to increase uptake to support patients? Thank you very much, Rosie. Really great question. Um, reflecting over this over the last few days, and I'm going to just going to pick four um, out of the 14 um, opportunities that I identified over the last couple of days. So firstly, I think um, digital mental health um, solutions can really help address health inequalities. So I'll give you a great example of this. Um, when Sleepio rolled out um, across Scotland, um, we saw in the first few days of implementation, patients signing up to use this digital therapeutic in the Highlands, the Islands, Scot um, Shetland, Orkney, all over um, Scotland in parts that have been really traditionally very hard to um, support with face-to-face -face therapy. Um, and a lot of these areas, of course, um, have um, you know, wider determinants of, of, um, of poor physical and mental health. So to have a digital technology that is very ubiquitous, um, that's available across mass populations overnight, really does help to reduce um, health inequalities. 
I think the second um, opportunity for digital mental health solutions is around accessibility um, and a support to reduce um, stigma. Um, often we know that people are often very reluctant to seek support, um, particularly face-to-face support for their mental health condition. It's not still as acceptable in many patients' minds to seek help. And we know that very discreet um, again, used on ubiquitous technology can really help to reduce the stigma associated with receiving support proactively for mental health conditions. Um, I guess the third barrier that um, digital mental health can help overcome as a real opportunity is it can be really incredibly cost effective and cost saving. Now, we saw that when NICE evaluated Sleepio. Um, Sleepio not only was determined to be first line treatment now for insomnia or insomnia related conditions, but it also saved money. Um, Most NICE guidelines are um, um, cost efficient. Sleepio has been proven to be cost saving in as much that it reduces the need for GP face to face um, appointments and other um, relating to overprescribing as well, uh, which is fantastic, particularly in these um, difficult, um, austere times that we live in. Um, in terms of cost saving, this really um, this really helps to reduce the therapist time as well. We know we have huge pressure on workforce. Uh, we have we we don't have enough therapists. We don't have enough psychologists um, in the service. And again, where appropriately prescribed, it can really, really help um, to manage the particular pressures that we see on um, the workload. And finally, um, I guess my final point here is that it's truly scalable for large health populations. And again, we've seen this in Scotland where um, we were able to scale um, a digital therapeutic across a whole population almost overnight. Um, And the same is true for other large populations as well, of course. Um, I think the the second part of your question, Rosie, was around uh, what advice would I give to um, other digital health organisations looking to collaborate uh, with the NHS? Um, And to start this off, I'm just going to say one really important point. Um, When you consider a a digital therapeutic, therapeutic for me means treatment and not wellness. So the evidence standards required for digital treatment need to be on a par with perhaps a traditional um, pharmacological pathway. Um, And that being said, um, I would encourage um, organizations to think um, around positioning their treatment as clinically led. So really important to have the science and the clinical input into the development of the therapeutic. Market informed. So how should the digital therapeutic be um, um, positioned with the population and also the healthcare professionals. And then finally, it's product um, supported. So products very, very important, but the most important part to get a successful digital therapeutic into the hands of patients who will benefit is that it's a clinically led service. It's not just technology. And I think that's a really important um, um, point to convey. Um, and I think the, the final point here is to ensure that um, whatever you do doesn't add additional burden onto the role of healthcare professionals. So if we expect our HCPs to fill in lots of forms or to input directly themselves into the system, then it can add significant burden. We don't want that. So your implementation model needs to be as lean as it possibly can. Um, so really have always an eye on the role that you expect the system to play in not only developing, but also distributing um, product.
yeah, really understand your pathway, I think is probably what I'm trying to say there. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Heather. Brian, Heather's just set out what's kind of required from that side. I suppose it would be good to hear from you what you'd like to see from the NHS in support of the uptake of digital health technologies. I, I suppose we need to see a bit more of the same, but I think to go back to Harpreet's point is, is to understand that, that people are differently digitally enabled or to put it a less positive way, d- digitally excluded. So just by way of a couple of examples, I suppose. So, so firstly, my partner um, uh, has started having online therapy at the start of the pandemic. And that's really worked for her because, you know, she doesn't need to go into a, a clinic. She doesn't need to sit with other people. Um, the anxiety that comes with the travel and all of that sort of stuff has really helped her. And she's built up a very strong relationship with her therapist um, over, over the course of the pandemic. And it's, re- it's definitely helped. So I think, you know, firstly, making those things more uh, generally available to, to people who are able to do them. Um, another example that really strikes me, and that's one that I feel very, very perfectly about, which is what I call the, the 8 a.m. jail that people have to go through. So this is this notion that if you want to see your GP, you uh, have to call shortly after 8 a.m. When, when it opens, when the GP surgery opens. It's an absolutely appalling system for people with mental illness. It's not. Re- I don't think it's very good for anyone, frankly. I'm not convinced it's good for the medical professions either. But if you have got a capability or a or a confidence, or even a capacity problem, which a lot of people with mental illness have, and then you're immediately faced with this pressure of actually making an appointment. There's really strong evidence that people just won't engage at all. And you know, one of our services that we ran, I'm speaking to uh, one of our service manager uh, up in Southport, and she was talking about the fact that every single morning she sits in a queue with uh, you know some of our service users trying to get through. Uh, to get access to to care. Now, I don't see why something like that, for those who are a bit more digitally enabled, couldn't be done uh, digitally. So there's something about kind of removing some of the pressure on professionals by using um, what you might call 20, some, some slightly more 21st century approaches to, to health problem, basic health problems. And But then I think the other part of it is that... Um, is that the kind of the kind of regulation system? So CQC or NICE or or, or whoever else happens to be need to engage better. Um, we had a meeting last week with a, a senior Department of Health and Social Care official, and we were just talking about the extent to which, you know, actually maybe it's the case that the inspection and uh, um, guidance regime is be as being beginning to be left behind by the digital innovation that's going on around the system. So I think there's a kind of uh, need for catch up and those those therapies and those digital innovations which are working for patients and which 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 could help relieve pressure on the system. We need the likes of NICE and and CQC to actually step in, measure, regulate, and where appropriate, uh, encourage the system to use. So, I think it's picking up on some of those lessons that that we've all uh, gathered from the pandemic and and really beginning to accelerate them. Yeah, absolutely. And if I can pick up on that NICE point, earlier this year, NICE launched their Evidence Standards Framework, ESF, for digital health technologies, which develops standards that ensure new digital health technologies are clinically effective and offer value to the health and care system. Harpreet, how applicable do you see this to mental health technologies? And does this mean we're heading in the right direction? Yeah, totally, it does. Um, and, you know, like I said, it's it's, it's a real benefit that we've seen, you know, big steps forward with NICE and the approval of technologies and the evidence framework that allows us to ensure that the rigor, the quality and safety 
um, it is brought you know through these technologies when when we're proving them. However, I, I must say though that the challenge still exists, which is how do we get this in the hands of the patients and the hands of through the clinicians, and that engagement piece I think is hugely critical. So even though we might have the approvals, even though we might have the economic evaluations to show that it's cost effective. Unfortunately, it's not quite trickling down to, uh, well, primary care in particular, so GPs, uh, but then more importantly, to patients and citizens. Now, I think, obviously, you know, the NHS GP route isn't the only channel for something like this. I think there's an increasing uh, role for uh, big employers, corporate organizations, and other elements of the public sector to be involved in this to provide to their employees. Uh, but the route for by the clinicians, a and which is mainly GPs, is that we could be doing a lot more on that space on the engagement front. And I think that's partly a big responsibility. Well, it should be a responsibility for the organizations that have developed the tools. But I think NICE and some of the other organizations can also play a role in actually getting this out in front uh, for patients, including the Royal Colleges and those that have access to clinicians to ensure that um, we can utilize this. Just to end, you know, some of these were drugs, they'll be on the shelves within weeks and many patients will have got access to them immediately. And I think we've got a bit of a heavy lifting to do when it comes to digital technologies. I completely agree, Harpreet. I mean, I think this is as much as a problem around digital maturity uh, as much as anything else. So in the huge amount of change and flux that we see um, our health and care system in the middle of right now with the creation of ICSs, um, often thinking about an individual digital an, an individual digital health technology in the grand scheme of EHR integration and um, data privacy and security, this these patient facing decisions can often be pushed back to well we'll get around to considering what our strategy is for patient facing tools at another time, and also um, it's a pretty good point here to mention the DTAC um, I guess which we certainly warmly welcome. Um, and I do very much so in terms of the essential tool that will help health and care um, uh, providers um, actually understand what's safe and what's not safe. So there are over 350,000. Um, if you could see me, you'd see my fingers doing the inverted comma apps out there at the moment. Um, how do you choose the good, the bads um, from the ugly as a um, a kind of healthcare profession it's very difficult to do that at the moment and I see DTAC as being a really important first step um, in helping and supporting the system to make those sensible choices DTAC by the way is a digital technology assessment criteria standards laid out by um, NHS England which has now fully been um, adopted around the system so you have to comply if you're an innovator with these standards in order to be considered for being ready for commissioning but um, we're, we're still very much at the start um, and certainly when I speak to um, particularly primary care physicians there's often no time really to think about you know which diabetes app do I choose which mental health tool do I choose how do I then get the commissioning and the reimbursement framework in place to adopt that tool um, so I'm, I'm hoping that I'm optimistic that we're going in the right direction and certainly um, there seems to be a willingness to create more of a pathway for the adoption of digital therapeutics in the same way that a, um, a medicine would be adopted, but we're some way off that mark at the moment. Thank you, Heather. I think this all sounds very practical and we can see that we're going out in the right direction. We've set out that digital therapeutics can be a brilliant complement to traditional therapies and can have substantial impacts on improving the mental health of patients. 
What advice would you perhaps give to other digital therapeutic providers considering entering this market? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually going to talk about sort of privacy and data, I think, first. So if you are an innovator and you're serious about joining uh, the health tech, digital mental health tech revolution, I think you need to take privacy really, really seriously. So for better or worse, patient data has made more headlines in the last 12 months than it ever has in the last um, over the last 20 years. Um, and every time considerations around this are rushed or poorly approached, I guess it sets the playing field back dramatically. So as an innovator um, looking to enter or spread in this market, really think about your kind of data privacy um, and your data security policies. Um, because when it's done well, it's really exciting to think about the possibilities um, that good data, good data sharing can um, can deliver to improve um, care standards. Um, as I said before, um, I certainly welcome standards such as DTAC. Um, and I think DTAC um, sets a really clear and transparent benchmark for anybody to wanting to innovate um, in England. Um, and but these there has to be really good principles of data sharing and privacy. They should not be new um, and they really do need to be very, very front of mind when asking sort of questions about data. Um, I guess the other point for innovators looking to enter or spread in this market is that really make sure that the data that you um, that you collect and that you use is really valuable to um, to patients. Um, remember, it's very very confidential data about their health, and and using it well ensures that patients can draw as much clinical benefit as possible when using um, these um, fantastically opportunistic digital mental health platforms. Um, and of course, it really helps with R&D and insights um, to develop the next generation, the next era um, of, um, um, of, of development and innovation. Um, so doing it right with full transparency and informed consent in collaboration with patients and NHS organisations means that everyone can realise the power and the benefit of good data sharing practice. So I'm sorry to, to labour that point, but I think it's often overlooked, particularly in early stage development with innovators who have a great idea, can see unmet need. It's often something in the past that has been perhaps thought of and added to as an afterthought. So my advice would be to make sure that that is front and centre of all of your product development when you look at how to engage, develop and then distribute um, very transformative products to the market. Yeah, absolutely. And Brian, perhaps I could come to you on that point. I don't think it's a laboured point at all, Heather. I think it always does come down to this question. So, Brian, it'd be great to get your thoughts on the data and privacy element. Yeah, I, mean, I really uh, agree with Heather. We've, we've it's a very big concern of patients, of course, that their private and confidential data is protected. And, you know, we need to make sure uh, as we kind of see more players coming into the market, that principle is very strictly adhered to. There is a flip side of this, though, I think, which is, I think in its desire to protect people's data, um, the NHS has in certain <laughs> quarters uh, often created an unintended consequence, which is... Uh, you know, patients finding themselves again and again having to explain, um, you know, their 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 situation. Um, when you talk about, for example, people being detained under the Mental Health Act, um, who is it that's got access to 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 data then, and what kind of decisions are people making? 
Um, and I think there's just something generally about still patients having to navigate their way around their system when they're not well enough to do so, you know, to be their own advocates um, when they're not in a position to, to do that. So there's something about if data can be used in a more sensible way, which, yes, of course, respects people's privacy, but helps build a more intelligent picture of an individual's uh, health in the broader sense, then I think it possibly allows for better intervention and more tailored intervention. Um, so I think it's a kind of question of seeing the two in balance with one another. Yeah, thank you so much. I think we don't have much time left and we could probably open a bit of a can of worms and could do a whole new podcast on that topic. So maybe we'll watch this space. Um, I just want to come to all of you um, just to ask one final question, if that's okay, and Heartbreak, perhaps I'll come to you first, then Heather, then Brian. Um, just quickly, what's the one thing that you'd like to see in the next year in this space done differently? So look, narrowing that down to one thing is always tricky, isn't it? But uh, but I'll certainly try my best. You know, look, from my perspective, being a clinician, I, I just want to make sure that my patients are getting the best access to the best treatment. And now whether that's through digital means or other means, you know, this is the important thing. Like I said earlier, the digital technologies with the evidence and the new solutions that we've seen over the number of years that have been built have, have really been a step change in the innovation cycle, but also the therapeutic interventions that they are. And I would like to just see many more of them being used, especially let's take sleepy example that's gone through the rigor of being nice approved. And, and I think that would be a real step forward for me. Okay, I'm glad I went second. It gave me a few minutes to, to think. Um, I guess my wish, if I had a magic wand, would be that this time next year, there is a really clear pathway through um, the NHS in England to reimburse um, and pay for novel distribute um, novel evidence-based um, digital therapeutics. And I guess that means the creation of some kind of digital therapeutic process or market that's very, very clearly signposted. So innovators absolutely understand from the get-go what they need to do to be considered and um, to be um, integrated into various different care pathways. Um, it feels quite often that there's a hot potato being passed around um, NHSE at the moment, um, whilst everybody is very willing to engage and understands the need for this. I'm hoping that within the next 12 months, that it will have settled and the requirements, guidelines and process um, are very clear, not only for big health, but also for any other innovator um, wanting to distribute and make um, a digital therapeutic um, available to large swathes of populations. Yeah, and I think I'm going to cheat and say one and a half things, if that's OK, because, of course, uh, getting good quality care quickly and close to home is is the most important thing for people who have a mental illness and it's very obvious that both in terms of accessing accessing treatments uh you know uh ensuring that you are taking your medication and so on that there is a big role for digital to play but i think if we continue to see patients as just the sum of their illness and don't think about all of the other social factors that drive their ill health so people's financial position do they have you know, are they in a safe and warm home? Are they isolated from their communities, their physical health, their employment prospects? All those things will have an impact on people's illness itself, and therefore, by definition, the extent to which they have to engage with the health system. And I think there's a very big role 
for digital provision in helping people with all of those other social factors that ultimately then end up putting pressure on the health system. So I think that's that's we shouldn't just be thinking of this in, in narrow health sense, but in the wider social and economic determinants to make a difference to people's health. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone. Really insightful. I think that's all we have time for today. As always, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to the challenges we've just discussed, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for myself and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. My thanks once again to Brian, Heather and Hartfreet and thanks to you for listening.